Hey everyone, Beyond the Baseline is brought to you by the SeatGeek app. The easiest way to find a great deal, pay for your ticket, get to your seat. Download the SeatGeek app, enter our code BEYOND for 20 bucks off your first purchase. We're also sponsored by FanDuel, the leader in one-week fantasy football with more winners, more payouts than any other site. Enter the promo code BEYOND at FanDuel.com for a bonus match of up to $200. One of the great sort of verities of, of jazz is the rests count as much as the notes. And if you're really a connoisseur, you, you appreciate the, the pauses as well as the notes being played. Is there anything analogous to that in tennis? You are absolutely right. One of the things you learn as an older and more experienced musician is that you don't have to drive the bus all the time. You don't have to play every note. You don't have to cram everything in. And I think I hear you guys talk a lot about, oh, it's really unfortunate that that person is rushing, that they need to slow down. And it's the same thing with young jazz musicians. They're in a hurry to get everything out, and they need to kind of lay back a little bit. Hey, everyone. John Wertheim here. This week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Our guest this week is Fred Hirsch, eight-time Grammy-nominated jazz pianist, Vanity Fair says he's the most arrestingly innovative pianist in jazz in the last decade. He has a new solo CD out. He is also a tennis fan, and that's where we'll begin. Fred, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. So I gave you a little heads up. You know where I'm going with this. You are an accomplished jazz musician. I feel like jazz and improvisation and innovation are these terms that we bandy about somewhat cavalierly in tennis, and I thought it would be cool if we talked to an actual jazz musician who could talk about the role of, of improvisation in tennis. And with that broad question, I invite you to riff. All right. Um, well, um, I also have been uh, teaching uh, young uh, pianists or professional pianists uh, for many, many, many years, and um, I've taken my uh, interest in tennis and not only the improvisatory aspect of tennis, but the body mechanics of tennis kind of into the teaching studio. Uh, Many pianists uh, start uh, with their focus on the fingers and making the fingers strong and doing all these exercises to make uh, the fingers more independent. Um, I feel that uh, the piano as a percussion instrument Uh, The sound kind of comes from your body and it goes through your fingertip into the piano, much in the way that uh, a tennis player, uh, their whole body and their footwork and everything has to be totally lined up so that they can make that perfect shot or they can make that uh, improvisatory shot. And we've all seen many tennis matches, uh, notably the recent Serena upset, where you could just tell that it was not going to go her way just by her footwork. And uh, I also love the more improvisatory uh, uh, tennis players, the the McEnroe's, the Federer's, who kind of make up shots that are are not in the book in the heat of the moment. And that's because their technique uh, and their whole body is so aligned uh, to produce that perfect shot. It's not from the wrist. It's not from the arm. It's not from the shoulder. It's that racket is the end point of the whole, uh, 
affair. And um, another thing that relates jazz and tennis is when I'm playing a solo and I'm improvising, I want to be in that kind of flow state where I don't want to think too far ahead because then I'm going to figuratively drop the ball. And I don't want to dwell on what I just did if I maybe didn't like it so much because then I'm going to be distracted. And tennis players, I always hear, you know, the great ones, they just play the point. And uh, if they maybe had a bad patch, you know, they haven't lost the match. If I have a bad patch in a solo, it doesn't mean it's not going to be successful. Or one tune in a set might not be of the caliber of the other ones, but it doesn't mean that the whole set is a wash. So there's so many areas that jazz and tennis overlap. Wait, you know, I'll I'll ask you about sort of technique and, and the technical aspect in a second. But I mean, let, let's keep going on that point. I mean, you, you have no scoreboard. You have no first one to six games. You have this, you know, you, you have some sense of probably of what you want to do, but you have this improvisational component too. What what makes for a successful set? I mean, what, what at the end of the day, you're not looking at the scoreboard and saying, uh, you know, I, I won six games in each set. For you, with your sets, what defines success? Well, I think it's, you know, for me, a set of music is like planning a really great menu. And, you know, if you do too many tunes that are similar in their language or in their vibe or in their key or in their tempo, you know, then it's like, you know, eating a a plate of food that has, you know, pasta, mashed potatoes and rice. You know, uh, I think variety, keeping my interest and the interest of the musicians I'm playing over, uh, playing with, uh, making an emotional connection to what we play, and then planning the the set. And a lot of times, I, I my sets are spontaneously planned. I know the first couple of tunes, and then I kind of see how I feel. And I think a good uh, set of music is a kind of a journey. It kind of takes you somewhere, uh, much like in the days of people my age, I'm going to be 60 in a couple of weeks. We sat down and if we wanted to listen to music, we had to sit with an LP on a stereo, on a, on a sofa in front of a stereo. We couldn't listen while we were jogging or doing email or uh, anything else. And so we developed the, the idea that the sequence of a side of a record uh, really mattered. And then when CDs came along, you had an opportunity to tell a slightly longer story, maybe a 60-minute continuous story instead of a side A and side B. So I take a lot of care in when I put a CD together, taking the audience on some kind of journey, having enough variety, and uh, that each piece within itself is successful, but that cumulatively the listener is you know, uh, left with a really great impression. It's funny because I've heard tennis players describe a match the same way that that you go out there and you're fresh and you sort of strap in and you're not going to, you know, you you have no idea. Is this going to be 45 minutes? Is this going to be three hours? Are there going to be ups and downs? Is it going to be straightforward? I've heard multiple tennis players use the word journey too, but it it strikes me from an improvisation standpoint, the, the big difference as I see it is that there's someone on the other side of the net in tennis. I mean, you're at some level dependent on the ball you're being fed as opposed to, uh, a jazz musician. Do, do you think this sort of the, the existence of an opponent, what does that do for creativity and, and for improvisation? Does it accentuate it or blunt it that there's someone on the other side giving you a ball to hit? Well, that's why I play with uh, the bass player and drummer that I've been playing with for years now. That's why I like to play 
uh, every year at the Jazz Standard Club here in New York in May for the for ten years running. I every night invite a different partner to play duo with me, people I've never played with before. It's like meeting somebody at a tournament for the first time. Uh, we just see what happens. Uh, sometimes we're reading music. Sometimes we're just playing tunes we know. But there is definitely a give and take. And I don't expect my bass player and drummer in my trio to be subservient. Uh, if they have an idea, they they throw it at me. And I have to be sometimes willing to say, oh, I hadn't thought of that, but let's try that. Uh, I don't want, I want them to feel involved, uh, certainly supportive, but sometimes they throw me a curveball or, or a shot that I didn't expect. And that's part of jazz. You know, you can't really have jazz without some danger. And if it becomes too predictable, uh, and formulaic, then it's really not interesting. Um, and we've all seen, uh, tennis matches that can become kind of not that interesting when you have two opponents of the kind of same style, two baseliners, two grinders, you know, uh, it's, it's not really as interesting as when you have, you know, two players of maybe opposite styles and temperaments. In the old day, you had a baseliner versus a serving volleyer. Uh, so it was really a lot kind of, uh, those, those matchups were always kind of more interesting. It's the same thing with Jazz. Sometimes people will say, "Wow, Fred's playing with this guy. I got to check that out. That's really unusual. I wouldn't think that they would have much in common." And and uh, so yes, definitely, I like an opponent, if you will, and I like I like you know being taken out of my comfort zone, and that's how I get better. It's funny you mentioned Serena, and I think when people see that a tennis player has lost there. There's this sort of reflexive, Oh, they, they got wild and they couldn't control the ball. And what I find is that more often than not, it's, it's the opposite. They play tentatively. They play passively. They stop improvising. They stop right. taking, I mean, you, you look at Rafael Nadal's play this year and it's not that he has this welter of unforced errors. It's that he's not taking the risks and not improvising as he once did. Do, do you sense that as a, as a fan watching? And do you have the same, you know, that does an off night, performing cause you to improvise more cautiously are you, are you talking about tennis or jazz well no. both i mean do you, do you sense that when you're watching tennis and then as a performer in in jazz yeah. when you have an yeah. off night does that sort of change your your almost your risk reward ratio um you know i mean uh i i think um there are nights maybe that are not great where you're either trying too hard or you've maybe had uh, an an idea of what's going to happen and that's not what happened and you got kind of attached to it and you know as we all know attachment leads more often to disappointment than anything else you know so i mean i've seen cases in tennis matches where somebody walks onto the court and they feel like well their ranking is a bazillion times higher than their opponent they deserve to win and then they realize four or five games in they're going to have a match on their hands with the possible exception of jazz, is there anything more American than watching sports on TV? I don't think so. But if you've been itching to get out to a game or concert in person, do it with the SeatGeek app. Why, you ask? Because they're giving our listeners $20 when you use the code BEYOND. That's right, a $20 check with your name on it, no catch. Here's how it works. Download the SeatGeek app on your iPhone or Android. It's free, takes less than a minute. Then search for your event of choice, find the deal you want, enter our code and when you complete the purchase, SeatGeek will send you a $20 check to your house. It's that easy. You want to go 
watch tennis, you want to go watch Fred Hirsch in concert, you can do that using the SeatGeek app. It pulls in ticket options from hundreds of sellers online and shows you the best deal. It also has this cool feature called Deal Score that ranks every ticket on the market in terms of value, plots the best deal with a color-coded map. It makes it easy to crack the code on the best values. Again, here's how you download this great offer. Download the app, enter the promo code BEYOND. SeatGeek will then send you a $20 check. Once you've made your first SeatGeek purchase, it's that easy. Go to SeatGeek app, enter the code BEYOND, save $20. Tennis season is winding down. So is baseball season. We're in the postseason, in fact, and it is the best time of year for seam heads. SI has the perfect show to keep you up to date with playoff baseball. Every week, it's the strike zone. SI's baseball podcast has the dynamic duo of Ted Keith and Steve Canella. They take you inside the numbers of America's pastime. Search for the strike zone on iTunes or find it at SI.com backslash podcasts. So in, in tennis, there's this unwritten civic ordinance that whenever a conversation touches on artistry and creativity, we must invoke Roger Federer's name. Am I uh, c- correct in making the assumption he's he's a player from an artistic standpoint that you enjoy watching? Yeah, I I really enjoy watching him. I mean, uh, you know, you know, just the um, the the amazing level of uh, tennis smarts that he has, uh, the uh, the the depth in his game. Uh, the, not, the, not just the, the serve, which is still at 34 years old, remarkable and fairly hard to read. Uh, maybe it's not the fastest or hardest, but he doesn't lose his serve often. Uh, I love that he, he has that quality that the great tennis players have, in my experience, going back to you know, the wooden era, when I wooden racket era that I uh, used to love uh, watching the older players, you know, he's kind of one with the ball, you know, he, you really feel like, you know, he's really uh, completely uh, involved in making that shot. And when he comes up with these shots that, as I said, are not in the playbook that even he, maybe if you asked him to practice that shot, wouldn't be able to do it. But at an inspired moment, you know, late in a third set, uh, he's going to come up with it because he just has that extra degree of talent and athleticism and natural ability and coordination. Um, It's really a beautiful thing to watch. What other players do you enjoy watching? What other players do I enjoy watching? Uh... Well, I mean, certainly when uh, Serena Williams is on, there's kind of, it's sort of a remarkable and beautiful thing. Uh, lately, I've been, uh, just this past summer, I've been enjoying watching Venus, you know, who is none, no less remarkable than her sister. Um, I have grudgingly uh, come to accept Djokovic as the total badass that he is. <laughs> Uh, well you know, how he can turn offense to defense and uh, defense to offense and his uncanny uh, ability to move and stretch. Uh, and he's like kind of Gumby out there. Um, uh, I was never a huge Nadal fan. Uh, I found it a little too brutal. And, um, you know, like every shot 
you know, seemed to be the last shot he was going to make. Uh, and, and that, you know, that kind of got a little, a little tiresome. Um, but I can, you know, I can enjoy seeing really lots of, of players, you know, during a major, you know, you turn on the television at night and you, the, the draw might say, you're probably going to see this person and that person, but somebody got knocked out in the first round and you see somebody you haven't seen and they've got nothing to lose and they're swinging for the fences and they've got somebody with a big name, you know, on their heels. And that's really exciting to see, to see, uh, and to see some of the younger players, uh, break through. I mean, you know, we've had the big three or the big four in the men's game and we've had the domination of Serena, but sooner or later that's going to end. And it's interesting to watch the younger or mid-career players and think who might step up and get a major or more than one major going forward. The, I think one of the, one of the great, I don't want to say cliche, but, but one of these, these sort of verities of, of jazz is the rests count as much as the notes and the rests are these, these notes of silence. And if you're really a connoisseur, you, you appreciate the, the pauses as well as the notes being played. Is there Anything analogous to that in tennis when you watch? Huh, that's a very interesting perspective. You are absolutely right. I think, you know, the the one of the things you learn as an older and more experienced musician is that you don't have to drive the bus all the time. You don't have to play every note. You don't have to cram everything in. You can play play a phrase, kind of enjoy it, uh, and and see where it wants to go without pushing things and without crowding things. And I think, you know, that's why, you know, the older experienced players nine times out of 10 in the major finals, you know, we always say, oh, you know, this young person or this person who is a surprised finalist hasn't had that experience yet. And I think, you know, there's the rest of, okay, we finished the point, now we're going to serve. And I think I hear you guys talk a lot about, oh, it's really unfortunate that that person is rushing her, his right, or her right. serve, that they need to slow down. And it's the same thing with young jazz musicians. They're in a hurry to get everything out, and they need to kind of lay back a little bit and also to listen to the other people around them. And I think, uh, so, yes, you do have that rest between, and that's a chance to gather yourself, and, and you can adjust that tempo uh, of your serving uh, speed maybe uh, between points, and uh, I think if I was a tennis player, I would want to find that place where I'm thinking about the next point, but I'm not thinking about it too much, and where I feel physically rested, but not you know losing my concentration. I think that's just different for every person. I got a random one for you. This this conversation, I, I should say, springs out. We we had a very pleasant lunch a, a few maybe a week ago or so, we were, we were talking tennis, and it occurred to me that we sort of went back interchangeably, men and women and Venus and Serena and Federer Nadal and Justine Hennon and Capriati and Mary Jo Fernandez. Um, what's kind of the gender breakdown in jazz? Well, that's an interesting uh, point. I think, you know, um, if we're talking about non-vocalists, um, uh, if we're talking about instrumentalists right. i mean certainly there have been some some you know notable women in the you know uh you know in the early mid part of last century who who you know stepped up uh mostly piano players mary lou williams mary mcpartland people like that 
uh, there, you know, it's only in the last maybe 30, 40 years that we're hearing uh, women playing uh, horns, brass, saxophones with uh, drums, with a lot of authority and um, substance. Uh, you know, I think there's been a lot made of, you know, jazz being a kind of a boys club. Uh, and I know that there is some, you know, brouhaha in the tennis world about, okay, the women are getting equal prize money, but they're not playing five sets in the majors. And, um, but hey, I herring. think, the, yeah, but I think the, the, the women's game, you know, is, is often as entertaining as the men's game. Uh, and I think right now in jazz, we're seeing uh, with the with really the, in the last 30 or so years with the um, uh, explosion in jazz education, uh, we're seeing you know more and more women saying, well, I want to play the alto saxophone or I want to play the trombone or the trumpet or the drums or the bass. Uh, and I think now that it's, I guess the equivalent in tennis would be the internationalization of the sport where you have you know, people from all over the world. Uh, it's not just, you know, America and Australia and France anymore and Great Britain. You know, there's there's so many players from Eastern Europe and Asia and South America. Uh, it's become accessible to everybody. So um, uh, you've got a more diverse pool of talent. And I would say the same with jazz. Hey, everyone, we take a break from tennis and jazz to ask this penetrating question. How's your fantasy football team doing? that question inspires shame or self-loathing have no fear you don't need to tolerate a bad lineup or an injured player any longer start fresh today with FanDuel and do it with up to $200 in bonus cash when you use our code beyond unless you've been living under a rock somewhere you probably heard of FanDuel if you ever wanted to try it but didn't really know how here's what it's all about FanDuel is the leader in one week fantasy football they pay out over $75 million a week this football season. We all love fantasy football. Sometimes we get lousy teams. FanDuel does away with the frustration because you can draft a team anytime, drop in and out of tournaments for weekly cash prizes. Entry fees start at just a buck. Over a million players have won money playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. Now it's your turn. How do you do it? Easy. Go to FanDuel.com, click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner, use the code BEYOND, and sign up now. Again, use the code BEYOND, and you'll get a bonus of up to $200. This offer is good only for the first 50 people that use the code BEYOND. So do it today. Don't get left out. FanDuel.com. Every day is a new season. Try it out today. All right. Now back to Fred Hirsch talking about the parallels between jazz and tennis. I was going to ask about the internationalization, too. But but I'm curious. I mean, you've spoken so thoughtfully and passionately about these parallels between jazz and tennis, do you do you see this with other sports? Or is tennis special, or or could we be having this conversation about golf and basketball and the football game on Monday night? Um, I relate to tennis uh, because you, I, I think the the mental game is so important. Uh, the mental game in music is so important. Uh, whether you're playing classical music or where, where you know a piece really well, but you, the, the ideal is to make you and the audience feel like they're hearing it for the first time to keep it fresh. Uh, uh, jazz where you're not really quite sure you know what's going to happen, but you want it to sound inevitable in some sort of way. 
um, I think the physicality of playing the piano from your lower body through your arms and fingers into the piano is very much like uh, it's a little bit radical uh, to people who are, who have developed very finger-based uh, technique. So, you know, balance and finding the sound in the piano is something that I've spent a lot of time with. Maybe it's one of my signature uh, things about my playing is the actual sound I get. It's just like, you know, the, the, the great ones, they have a, you know, they have a motion on their serve that's distinctive, or they have a way that they play a certain stroke that's kind of unique and personal that works for them. And sometimes it looks very strange, like Marianne Botoli, or sometimes it looks really smooth and wonderful, you know, like, uh, like Serena's serve. You just never know. Envisioning Marion Bartoli warming up before uh, performing a, a concert in a jazz studio, but but you, do you, do you have the same type of range in jazz that you have in tennis stylistically? Whereas you, I mean, Marion Bartoli is a good example. I mean, two two players on the side of the net can almost look like they're playing different sports sometimes. Do you, do you have that as well? Absolutely. I mean, there's so you know, jazz is such a you know, it's like. I, I might say to you jazz and you might think of Miles Davis or Thelonious Monk or Charles Mingus and some other people would think of jazz as this kind of original music composed by young musicians and all kinds of odd time signatures with very complex mathematical bass. Uh, some people, for them, jazz is Dave Brubeck and big bands. You right, know, it's, right. it's, it's, it's like you say, classical music. Well, are you talking about, you know, Schoenberg? Or are you talking about Beethoven? You know, are you talking about Bach right. or somebody writing now? You know, it's a big, it's a big world uh, that, that, uh, that jazz encompasses now. It's not, um, this is jazz. This is not jazz. I mean, jazz is, you know, jazz, well, they say jazz and baseball are America's gift to the world in terms of really unique things that kind of happened here. Uh, and maybe some people would debate that because of the connection with, you know, rugby or cricket or something else. But, you know, pretty much jazz and baseball are kind of American there contributions to world culture. And um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, the definition is, is really pretty broad. And finally, I'm curious. I mean, one question we I ponder in tennis quite a bit, but I also suspect you ponder as well is sort of where where's the art going? So what's tennis going to look like in X years? And part of it is equipment and part of it is demographics. And part of it is sort of its space in the in the sportscape. Um, I, I wonder if you have the same sorts of conversations. What's jazz going to sound like in X years? Or, or, or is that not sort of organic to the discussion? Well, in my lifetime of playing jazz for 40 years as a professional, I mean, it's gone from, you know, for me, playing music on bandstands where nobody's looking at anything and you just had to know tunes and swing and it was kind of simple and, you know, to to very to a lot of complexity. Uh, I think tennis, you know, once we got out of the wooden racket era, era you know, the, the, the equipment has changed. Players are much, much bigger more conditioning, more training, but they're also flying around all over the world. You know, it, in you know they'll be playing in Singapore and then they'll be playing in San Paulo. I mean, it's just it's kind of crazy what they put their bodies through at this uh, elite level. I think one good thing that I think 
uh, tennis should do is be a little, come up with a better system of um, making sure that players don't delay between points. Uh, I think time violation warnings are pretty capricious and left up to the umpire, really. And a lot of people kind of push that envelope and uh, it really does slow the game down. Uh, I think that's something that could be maybe uh, legislated a little bit. I mean, uh, people kind of were uh, a little confused at the beginning by Hawkeye, but now, you know, thank God we have it. And, you know, they, I mean, the tie break was an innovation too, that really, really helped the sport. And frankly, I think tie breaks should be final sets of all tournaments should be a tie break. There should be an end point. You know, we shouldn't have uh, Isner Mahout. You know, we shouldn't have 16, 14 in the fifth. You know, these people have already been out there four or five hours. Like, you know, let's have an end point. And I think it'd be more exciting for the fans. All right, that's great. Speaking of end point, this is... uh... A yeah, thanks, John. I appreciate it. No, I, I think you know this. This is uh, this is what we're trying to do here. All sorts of perspectives, and uh, I'm glad glad you had some time. You're you're going to be performing. I want to get this out. You're going to be performing at the Village Vanguard here in New York, October 20th yeah, and 25th. Yeah, uh, October is that right? 20th to 25th. Yeah, 20 to 25. Come here, Fred Hirsch, big tennis fan. Thanks again. We'll do it again. All right. Thanks, John. That was great. I'm uh, I'm going to have you take us out with some Fred Hirsch music. All right. We'll see you soon.